Welcome to SciShow Tangents, the lightly competitive science knowledge showcase. I'm your host, Hank Green, and joining me this week, as always, is science expert, Sari Riley. Hello. And our resident everyman, Sam Schultz. Hi. First of all, I have to say congratulations to Sari for her recent engagement. She's going to get hitched. Yeah, wife city, baby. (laughs) (laughs) So congratulations to you and Sylvia. I have a question for you to start out our episode. I'm curious, what is your like favorite bad food that you love? Because you all know about me and corn dogs, right? Yeah. (laughs) Is that still your brand? Like, Um, do you still like a corn dog? Oh my God, yes. Like it's, it's less a part of my brand now. I just sort of like the... Inside jokes come in and out of style, but that was that was never a made-up thing. I love corn dogs. I've never had a corn dog I didn't like. Oh, it's kind of it's hard to mess them up, honestly. Yeah, you dip them yeah. in batter and you fry them. Like though, I have had a corn dog where the outside was hot, but the inside was still like refrigerator <gasps> temperature, and I did like that. it. So Ugh. I've still never had a corn dog I didn't like. Oh boy, you're a sick man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what's your trash, Sam? Trash of choice. I do think it's got to be Taco John's mm. uh, cheesy potato burrito. Is that what it's called? It's just a burrito with their sloppy, wet, liquid meat with the potato olays in it. And my mm-hmm. mouth's watering just thinking about <laughs> yeah, it. The potato olays are oh. like a spiced tater tot for those of you who have never been to a Taco John's. Yes, excuse me. Sorry. <laughs> uh, but the Taco John's near us closed. I know. No, we, I think we've talked about it on the podcast before. This is a big deal for me and Sam. You know, I've been thinking a lot about, and this is a completely different question, food that you've eaten that you know you'll never be able to eat again because oh. the place went out of business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think all the time about the first calzone I ever had, which was at a corner grocery (laughs) store that doesn't, you know, corner grocery stores barely exist anymore anywhere, but in Orlando where they definitely don't exist anymore. And they had like a big deli, you know, and they, they made their own calzones. It was the first time I ever had a calzone and like the bread was like, had a ton of sugar in it. And then the, like the inside was like super like Italian, like spiced meats. And I think about all the time and I will never have a calzone like that again. So good. I die. That's how I feel about <laughs> Costco's mixed berry pie. <laughs> Costco's around. They make so many different treats. Mm-hmm. But from my youth, we used to get mixed berry pie. I could eat one of those like large Costco pies almost by myself until my parents yelled at me to stop eating yeah. pieces of pie. Like mm-hmm. I'd have to ration it out. And it was just so, so packed yeah. full of sugar. It had big whole strawberries in there. Uh-huh. It was delicious. It was like wow. perfect combination of berries. Do they still make them? No, I haven't seen one in over a decade now. Uh-huh. You got uh, your eyes out. Yeah, I I look every single time at a, I'm at Costco mm-hmm. and never. They're just yep. gone off the face of the planet. And I've had mixed berry pies elsewhere, but there is something about that perfect, like sure, crispy different. on top, slimy on the other mm. side, sugary goo <laughs> that they got perfect. That doesn't sound like a trash food though. That's just a food you'll never have again. Do you have a trash food? Yeah. Uh, also in the dessert vein, any hostess cupcake oh, yeah. or knockoff oh. thereof. Mm-hmm. So any sort of like whipped cream pumped in yep. a fake chocolate cake, 
I could have a million. Yeah, some cake that was made by a large machine. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like there's nothing handmade or artisan no. about it. It's no. like no, this it cake. Never, you are the first person to have touched any of these things. <laughs> <laughs> a fudge round is my my favorite little Debbie. I go into gas stations and I'm like, oh, they have fudge rounds. And I grab them and I turn them over and I look at the calories and I put it back every time. You I'm can't like, do that. I can no longer eat 800 <laughs> calories of a a cookie like Is that how much they are really so much yeah oh it's God. an obscene That's amount ridiculous. yeah never look at the nutrition facts <laughs> and they cost like 35 cents it's like per calorie the cheapest thing that exists mm-hmm. is it even possible how's that possible how do they even get it to the gas station that cheap <laughs> <laughs> the aliens have it and they've yeah. made us hooked on them and i love it i'll, I'll do it forget soylent feed me the calorie dense yeah. little Hooks debbie snack up. cake oh, for the rest of the matrix life. and just give her little debbies and she'd be perfect that's right i'm just just like in question. that instead of the goo that keanu reeves is in it's just it's just ho-hos <laughs> yeah and zebra cakes <laughs> Just a pile of them, and you see my unconscious body just like eating them. Perfect. Just a plug in the back of your head, wriggling around in that wheat. Uh All right. (laughs) So every week here on Tangents, we try to get together to one-up, amaze, and delight each other with science facts while trying to stay on topic and failing. Our panelists are playing for glory and for Hank Bucks, which I'll award as we play. And at the end of the episode, one of them will be crowned the winner. Now, as always, we're going to introduce this week's topic with the traditional science poem. This week, it's from me. What is food? (laughs) Does it, <laughs> does it absolutely positively need to be chewed? What if it's just a real soft soup? A good soup served by a good soup troop. And afterward, you have a good soup poop. And if you're really excited, oh, no. you let out a good soup poop whoop. And if you do it with your friends, then that's a group good soup poop whoop. I forgot where I was going. What is food? Does it absolutely positively need to be chewed? If it's just something nutritious, that could be a Coke. A Coke that's delivered by a friendly Coke bloke. A guy who makes you laugh with his (laughs) Coke bloke joke. And then you sputter as you laugh. It's a Coke bloke joke choke. And then you wheeze. That was a good one. And a Coke bloke joke choke croak. I can't seem to stay focused. What is food? Does it absolutely positively need to be chewed? I just mean to ask, if it comes in a glass, if it goes up a straw, does it count at all? If it can flow in a stream, is it still feed? If it's blended up, is that a food stuff? It seems like it's both a yes and a no. I guess that's what Sari's for. I gotta go. <laughs> that was great. Yeah, my cheeks hurt from smiling. It was so good. <laughs> So the topic of the day is food. And Sari, I've already created a bunch of questions for you to answer. What is food? You know, I think liquids count as food. Uh, yeah. I, I'm going to say it doesn't need to be chewed to be food. Okay. I think you have to get some nutritional value or it needs to help you with some vital process, which is where like fiber fits in to like scrape the intestine. Right. What if it's salts? I need NaCl to survive, but it is a rock and it is not providing me energy. Is salt food? I think it's not. I don't think so either. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess it's food adjacent, but I think it is food-like enough Mm. that I would just call it food. I think it needs to have calories to be food. Like, I think a Coca-Cola classic is food, and a Diet Coke is not food. 
<laughs> um, if it's a, just a liquid nutrition, because a smoothie is food. You don't have to convince mm. me of that. You blend up a you blend up a hamburger with milk. That's that's as much as a hamburger as it was before you blended it up with milk. Is that what you but, think a smoothie is? <laughs> I've never had one. Is, is that know, not like, right? For example, it's just yeah. like you go to Taco John's and you get the cheesy potato burrito, and then you yeah, s- just some milk <laughs> blend it up. <laughs> just do it with their cheese goo. Oh. But like it, it does it does sort of stretch the definition to include a soda. But if you include pineapple juice or like a crushed up banana, I don't see why you, you wouldn't include soda. You don't need to have fiber. Is water food? Water is not food. Ah, water is food. It absolutely <laughs> is. <laughs> um, I'm all butt as legs and Sari's all water is food. Water is a food as defined by section 201F of the Federal Food and Drug and Cosmetic Act. Ah. It is a normal constituent of many foods and an essential in the preparation and processing of most commercially prepared foods. So legally it's a food. Nutritionally, it's not a food. <laughs> That's a drink. Couldn't be. So far, you've defined food, drink, and rock are the three categories <laughs> the of things. three thing. kinds of things. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everything is either a food, drink, or a rock. Yeah. This book? Mmm. Rock. <laughs> rock, probably, yeah. So I'm glad that the Food and Drug Administration stepped in to settle the debate, but I still don't believe them. Yeah, I guess that makes me kind of a government shill, which I don't yes, like either. I <laughs> yes. That's the law. Uh, Sari, do you know where the word food comes from? We've had it around for a while because sure. we've eat, eaten things for a while. But mm-hmm. as far as I can tell, <laughs> it has just morphed in different in different forms. So Middle English, it was still like food or foda. Uh, Old English, foda for sure. Proto-Germanic, fodon. It eventually traces back to the uh, statistically probable Proto-Indo-European root PA, which means to feed. Uh, Uh, Which is also in like antipasto in Italian. So like the the food you eat before you feed Mm -hmm. or pantry or Mm. pasture or uh, Uh uh, panic grass specifically. So like panic grass was named, I think, before panic as like fear Mm. came into existence. And it was just like, ah, this is. This is grass grass. This is food grass here. Um. And so my sense is, and this is just deductive reasoning, not any solid uh, linguist has talked to me about this, but it seems like we used it to refer to animal food. Like whatever we ate had more specific names, like I'm eating this chicken or I'm eating this bread, but then feed in general, was what you gave to the animals. And then we eventually generalized it to just like edible things as food for any organism. Um, I love that. I, you know, it makes sense that it would have, as an old, old word, it would have a lot of connections to things that aren't that related, like pastor, for example. Mm-hmm. You don't really think mm-hmm. of pastor and food as being related, but a pastor is Makes someone who, who feeds and takes care of a flock of humans, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And that means it's time to move on to uh, the quiz portion of our show. This week, I have a new game for you. It's called Would I Lie to You? <laughs> Not at all based on the British television uh, panel show. This is an homage, you know? It's an homage to one of my favorite television programs, yeah. Would I Lie to You? So in my hand, metaphorically, I have questions about food. And before we sat down to record this episode, I sent some of these questions to Sam and the others to Sari. And, uh, and they replied with an answer to the question, except they might 
be lying. So today, Sam and Sari are both going to decide whether or not they think the other person is lying to them, and I'm going to be revealing the questions they each got as well as their answers. So I will be telling you the question sent to the other, as well as the answer that they provided. And you will have to guess whether that answer is true or whether it is instead a bunch of lies. And if you correctly identify the truth or the lie, you will get a point. If not, then the other person will get the point. If this sounds overly complicated to you, look, we're trying out something new and you'll figure it out. Yeah. So Sam, we asked Sari the following question. Scientists used to think that the ability to chew food was primarily a mammalian trait and that other animals use their jaws or beaks to grab food, maybe tear it into chunks, and then rely on other musculature to break it down. Mm. The list of non-mammalian chewers has, however, slowly been increasing. And in 2016, scientists got video of this surprising animal chewing food. What animal is it? It is stingrays, which have little mouths on the bottom of their bodies that they use to chomp shellfish from the ocean floor. Would crunch, I lie crunch, to crunch. you? <laughs> oh. <laughs> they do have little mouths. This seems likely. Gosh, I can't I don't know what their skeletons look like at all. I think you are lying to me. Sam thinks that Sari is lying, and Sam is incorrect. Oh, okay. It's true. Scientists used to think that freshwater stingrays eat by swallowing their prey whole, but researchers observed ocelot river stingrays hunting insects, and they wanted to understand how stingrays could get past the insect's exoskeletons. So they used high-speed videography and glass-bottom tanks to figure it out. And they found that the stingray uses its fins to create a suction that binds its prey to its mouth, where it then uses a simple set of teeth to chew its food. All right, Sarah, we asked Sam the following question. This popular condiment got its start as a fermented fish sauce used in China. The sauce made its way to the West when British sailors realized it would help them liven up their meals. And over time, the sauce evolved into what we know today. What is this condiment, Sam? This condiment is Worcestershire sauce. Worcestershire sauce. Would I lie to you? Oh. Do I have to say that every time? I'm going to. <laughs> Worcestershire sauce does taste fishy-ish. It has an umami <laughs> taste to it. I, and it is a very European thing to take something that was across the world and put and their just, own name yeah, on just it. Just name like, it mm-hmm. after a city in the UK. Yeah. But I think that's a lie because I think it's ketchup. Wow. Sari Riley, the answer is ketchup. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Sam is a liar. You did that with a get-go, didn't you? I did. Well, oh. I, had, I think I had heard it before. Mm-hmm. I'm half Chinese, and so I try and learn some things about yeah. Chinese yeah. history. <laughs> what a trick. Wow, this yeah. is wild. I did not know this. The fermented fish sauce used by Chinese and Indonesian trader was called, I don't know, ketchup or ketchup. After British sailors began to use the sauce, they, they uh, altered the recipe and used it to add some flavor to their meals. And while there were a few British recipes that included tomato, it really took off as a ketchup ingredient in the U.S. And American mass production of ketchup began around the end of the 19th century. And over time, the sauce became sweeter as producers added more sugar to balance out the vinegar in order to uh, satisfy my palate which just wants everything to taste like ice cream. Thank you. Candy. <laughs> uh, very cool. Very interesting. And I would really like to taste that old timey ketchup to see what it's like. So, Sam, we asked Sari the following question. If you have had a picnic at the beach, you've likely had to fend off seagulls that want to steal your food. In 2019, scientists decided to test out a strategy that they thought could help deter these avian thieves from absconding with your food. What was the strategy, Sari? 
it was wearing super reflective or light emitting accessories because they get confused by the glare. Would I lie to you? Mm. This game stresses me out. Look at her little devious look on her face. <laughs> that was devious. Um, I don't think that's practical enough for it to even be suggested. I think that's a lie. You are correct. Sari would lie to you and leave you vulnerable to the theft and harassment by seagulls. If you want to keep seagulls away from your food, you should stare at them. At least that's what scientists <laughs> found works what? on herring gulls in the United Kingdom. They uh, like used embarrassed or what? <laughs> they used weighted bags of potatoes to lure in gulls. <laughs> if someone was watching the gulls, they would take on average 21 seconds longer to touch the food versus when they were not being watched and a few gulls wouldn't touch them at all. Look, if I'm being stared at by something like 85 times my size, I am eating a potato more slowly. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you say weighted bag of potatoes? I did say weighted bag of fried potatoes. I guess it's just so they couldn't so they take, couldn't the, take whole the whole thing, thing away. <laughs> yeah. That just feels like a challenge to me. I go get my friends. Mm -hmm. All right. This is the last question that we have. It's for Sari. Sam was asked this question. At the 2020 London Marathon, runners were handed edible drink pods designed to help them cut down on the amount of cups that would get thrown during the race. These pods contained a sports drink held in an edible casing. What was this casing made of, Sam? The casing was made of sodium alginate isolated from seaweed. Would I lie to you? <laughs> I mean, that's, that sounds very real. That sounds really sciencey and real. I feel like you're telling the truth. Seaweed is goopy. We've isolated other things from seaweed and used it. So I'm going to say you're telling the truth. And he is. Sam Schultz was telling the truth. At the 2020 London Marathon, volunteers handed out edible drink pods encased in seaweed. They were made by a London company called Notpla. I guess that's from not plastic uh, to cut down on plastic use to make the pods Notpla. Does it sound better in British? Notpla. Yeah, it, yeah, it does. Yeah. Dips a frozen version of the Natpla America, uh, <laughs> frozen version of their sports drink into calcium chloride solution and then a solution of sodium alginate, an extract of seaweed. The calcium ions and alginate link up to make a waterproof membrane, creating a casein that you could eat if you wanted to. So that means that Sari got three because she did get you to guess one of her lies and you, Sam, got mm -hmm. one. I know that you got a little bit of a hole to dig out of, and we're going to take a short break, and we'll see if you can do it in the Fact Off. Special Tangents is brought to you by Rocket Money, a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. I said it before, and I'll say it again. It's a subscription-based world out there. Video games, art-making programs, food delivery services. These things, they all have dang subscription services to subscribe to. And I don't want to cast asp aspersions, dispersions. Yeah. aspersions. One of those. Aspersions. Yeah. But it does seem like part of the subscription uh, business model is to get you to subscribe to something and then hope that you lose track of everything you subscribe to and just keep forking out 10 bucks a month until the sun mm -hmm. burns out. And you know yeah. what? That's actually a pretty good idea on their part, but it's not such a good idea for your wallet. Your money is like a bean. <laughs> <laughs> you want to plant it in fertile soil. You don't want people carving off pieces of your bean all the time. Yeah. That yeah. bean's not going to grow if, if there's a constant drain on 
the bean. bean. That (laughs) is where Rocket Money comes in. With Rocket Money, you can see all your subscriptions in one place, decide what you do and don't want, and cancel things with just a tap. Rocket Money will even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money. And beyond... I mean, beans and beyond subscription canceling (laughs) rocket money helps you build budgets, track your spending and more. There's all kinds of ways to take care of those beans. So they grow into a nice big bean plant. It has over 5 million users and it helps save members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. What would you do with 720 beans? I'd buy more beans. (laughs) (laughs) Different kind of bean, I guess. A cheaper, beans, more yeah. of a cheaper type you of bean. You buy cheaper beans with your expensive beans. <laughs> yeah, until I had an infinite amount of the cheapest bean you could possibly have. <laughs> Subscription <laughs> companies hate this one simple trick because you figured out their plot. And now you can use you- that money for beans instead. Stop wasting <laughs> money on things you don't use and start using money on things like beans. Cancel your <laughs> unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash tangents. That's rocketmoney.com slash tangents. Rocketmoney.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S. SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Factor, whose ready-to-eat meal delivery takes the stress out of meal planning. Stress is stressful. I don't like it. (laughs) Life just goes and goes, and it doesn't ever stop going. There's always something else to do. And one of those things is a very important thing called eating dinner. To eat dinner, one must pick out what they want to eat and then go to the grocery store and then buy the stuff and then chop the stuff and do other things to the stuff. You have to heat the stuff and put it in water. And then afterwards, you have to take the things that you heated it in and they're gross and you have to make them clean again. Meanwhile, life is still happening that all all that's building up around you. This is terrifying. I'm so, (laughs) I never want to cook again. (laughs) You're right, Factor Ad. I don't. I don't want to have this happen. This is unacceptable. Sometimes, uh, parentheses, all the time, uh, you just don't have the time or the energy for meal planning on top of everything else going on in your life. So thankfully, Factor is here to help. Factor's two-minute meals are your secret weapon come mealtime. You can get chef-crafted meals that are better for you and better tasting than takeout delivered right to your door ready to heat and ready to eat. No prep, no mess, no sink full of dishes, no stress. We're kicking stress out the door in 2024, and I certainly hope that's true for me. Heck yeah, Factor. <laughs> Kick my stress. Right out the door. <laughs> I'm going to get a chest freezer just for these meals. <laughs> oh, you're going to need one because they have over 35 meals to choose from. Flexible ordering options, add-ons, smoothies. Factor offers all sorts of fast, simple solutions when you're too busy to cook banish your stress even if it's just for like one hour while you're eating dinner head to factormeals.com slash tangents 50 and use code tangents 50 to get 50 percent off that's code tangents 50 at factormeals.com slash tangents 50 to get 50 percent off welcome back everybody it's three to one with Sari in the lead, and it's time for the fact off. Our panelists have brought some science facts to present to me in an attempt to blow my mind. And after they have presented all their facts, I will judge and award Hank Bucks any way I see fit, by which I mean which fact blows my mind the most and which one is easiest to turn into a TikTok that will promote this podcast. 
<laughs> but to decide who gets to go first, I have a trivia question. Apples have an average of 116.8 grams per kilogram of sugar in them, but their sweet taste is associated with many other factors like volatile compounds, texture, and sugar alcohols. What percent of perceived apple sweetness is associated with sugars? How are you measuring the percentages of perceived apple sweetness? With science, my dude. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, do, I don't know. We have definitely have a measure of, of sweetness because we use them for like artificial sweeteners and stuff. Gosh. I have no clue. It's between one and 100. <laughs> Thank you. Great, great. No negative percentiles here. I'm going to guess that it's low for some reason. Like, mm. that's the surprise. That's the twist. So 15%. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say 25%, and I'm going to just stick with it. All right. Both of you were on the in the right path, but despite the fact that neither of you got it correct and the answer was between your answers, Sari is the winner because you were closer. Mm. What's, What's the answer? answer? Oh, sorry. It's 17. <laughs> <laughs> you don't care about the actual answer. Isn't that interesting, though? This is why yeah. apples are so good. Just crunch on them, and you get way more sweetness than you get sugar. That's why nice. they keep the doctor away. Sarah, who's going to go first? Oh, I'll go first. In the early 1900s, many scientists were researching food and the different chemicals that our bodies get from what we eat. And in a 1912 article, the biochemist Casimir Funk wrote about four so-called essential substances that people needed to get from their food or else they would get sick with things like scurvy or beriberi, which are in fact related to vitamin C and vitamin B1 deficiencies. As a general term, he called them vitamines because they were vital and, by his best guess, probably nitrogen-containing amines. Hmm. The second guess oh. turned out to be wrong, but the name was catchy, so people just dropped the E and called them vitamins. <laughs> that is ridiculous. That Why? is so weird. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> it's just catchy name, a vitamin. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so between around 1913 and 1948, the global scientific community underwent a fun and chaotic and sometimes scandalous venture to identify all the vitamins we recognize today. But at the same time, advertisers heard about these so-called vitamins and adopted them as a new sciencey marketing term for food. Vitamins were perceived as healthy, so products that were chock full of vitamins were great. Oranges, cereal, you name it. Vitamins were even used to market food that was absolutely unappetizing, like small bricks of pasty yeast wrapped in foil. In the 1920s, oh. yeast wasn't a hot ticket item at the grocery store because people were buying things like bread instead of making it themselves, mm -hmm. and prohibition didn't help either. The people oh. in the yeast business, like Charles and Max Fleischmann of Fleischmann's Yeast Company didn't like that, so they decided yeast needed a rebrand. Brewer's <laughs> yeast already had some press in the medical community as being rich in vitamins because of a 1916 article trying to find cheap supplements, and it's true that it has riboflavin and thiamine inside, but Fleischmann Yeast Company hired a professor of physiological chemistry to do more research, and they started the, quote, yeast for health campaign with an ad agency to really lean into the vitamins mm -hmm. angle, even though all they were selling was a pasty living brick of fungus. I mean, that sounds fine to me. That's not all. That's amazing. I it's, can get a very it, small brick of fungus. All right. What? Would you make some of it or just eat it? So, yeah, according okay. to one article, they advertise things like mixing the yeast cakes into water, milk, or tomato juice, or eating one before every meal. 
And like many a health fad, this sketchy ad copy worked. Yeast sales tripled in the United States between 1917 and 1924. Wow. In the 1930s, the Fleischmann Yeast Company started making some yeast cakes that were fortified with extra vitamins, but the ads started getting overblown, like claiming eating yeast cakes was better than eating your fruits and vegetables. So the FDA started to step in to rein in big yeast. (laughs) It seems like, from my research, the tail end of yeast cakes were in the 40s and 50s when active dry yeast hit stores with a longer shelf life than these cakes. This is the stuff that you see in little pouches today. Mm-hmm. And nutritional yeast kind of carries the healthy yeast fad to modern yeah, days. Yeah, because we Unlike still hear about yeast, this yeast. This yeast is yeah. still up there. We're still putting it on our pop. Yeah, well, we're eating pe- it, huh? people are. And then I'm like, why did you do that? It tastes kind of good. <laughs> I don't like it. Well, yeah. So some people like it. Some people don't. Um, Unlike yeast cakes, it's not active or alive yeast. It's a bunch of the same species, S. cerevisiae, that has been heated up a lot and then dried out. The flakes are basically broken down proteins and junk. Mm -hmm. And a major product of those broken down proteins is the amino acid glutamate, which gives that Mm. umami flavor. It's the same stuff in monosodium glutamate, MSG, Mm. but branded Mm. as a health food. (laughs) And it does have some B vitamins and... Uh, some types are fortified with others, uh, but it's not a miracle worker either. And the conclusion of the story is food advertisers across the decades really aren't all that different. And yeast <laughs> will persist in some fad diet for the rest of eternity, probably. We'll always have yeast. In the future, that's all we'll eat. Yeah, just yeast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Sam, what do you have for us? Just this last week, Americans probably ate more pumpkin in pie form than they do over the course of the whole rest of the year. Wow. Complete conjecture. I have no idea. That seems I mean, right to me. That seems don't right say to me. wow. Yeah. <laughs> and pumpkins and gourds in general are pretty great. They have protective shells. They have sweet guts and even seeds you can roast up to snack on. But as is the case with many foods or like plants that we use as crops now, it was not always thus, especially in the Pleistocene era. <laughs> so aside from the hard shells on gourds that make them a big pain in the ass for little animals to eat, which were probably even harder back then, the earliest wild gourds were not only super bitter, but they were bitter because they contained cucurbitacin, named after the cucurbita <laughs> family that contains pumpkins and squash, okay. which is toxic. So most animals didn't want to and couldn't eat them anyway. So who was eating them? Yeah. In a study published in 2015, researchers reported finding ancient gourd seeds in mammoth dung, suggesting that, much like mm. avocado, these were fruits meant for megafauna. So massajons, giant sloths, and the like were big enough to eat the gourds, like chomp them, and also big enough to not get killed by the toxins. Uh, and if animals today are anything to go off of, bigger animals have less bitter sensitive taste buds than Mm. small ones Mm -hmm. i assume because uh at least partially because little guys need to worry about how much toxin they're eating much more than big guys do Mm. so megafauna can mow down on old-timey pumpkins not taste how nasty they were and absorb all the toxin to their body and be fine and then poop the seeds out wherever else they walked as you do so sometime around the pleistocene era humans made their debut and humans love to carry stuff around like water and berries and stuff Unfortunately for them, there were these weird hard fruits everywhere that tasted like shit and they would make you puke. But when you hollowed them out, they made for excellent bowls and bottles and stuff like that. Uh, and sometime around then, coincidentally, megafauna were in the process of going extinct. Just slash- who knows why? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we were eating all of them, basically. Uh, and this would have meant big trouble for gourds, but humans needed them for human type activities. So they adopted the gourd as their own. 
Uh, and as we cultivated them, researchers think that there were probably humans who thought, hey, these seeds and this bowl fruit look pretty good, started developing ways of preparing them that made them less bitter. Then we started selecting for less bitter seeds, and eventually we started selecting for sweeter guts until we have these big sweet gourds that we enjoy today. And DNA testing on seeds from various archaeological samples and wild plants confirm that like almost every lineage of gourd that humans domesticated in the early days are completely extinct in the wild now. So that is how the death of all megafauna and humans' need for water bottles conspired to bring us pumpkin. Wow. <laughs> that's very cool. That's very good. When I put pumpkins out on my doorstep, mm -hmm. they get eaten. Mm -hmm. um, they get eaten by squirrels and they get eaten by deers. But it never occurred to me that like the deer probably aren't ingesting a lot of the seeds because like, why would you? Unless, unless you were going to get the nutrition from them, in which case you're destroying their ability to be right. like to, to like fertilize anything. So if you crunch and them all up. On like a weird hollow part in the middle too. You get to there and then you're like, eh, I'm done. Yeah. So it, it never occurred to me that like, how would pumpkins distribute? Like, what would the point of the pumpkin or the gourd be if all the seeds are getting mashed up by deer teeth slash not getting eaten at all because they're not the part that the deer like? Yeah. But... If you have a giant sloth that can just eat it whole. Gotta get eaten by big guys. Man, they've only been extinct for like 10,000 years. Like we basically live in their world still. And we have all of these things that are designed to be in their world or evolved yeah. to be in their world. Uh, that's definitely going to be the one. That's definitely the winner. The question is, <laughs> is it a winner that that tops out over Sari's current lead, Sam? All right. So for a combination of, of timeliness and you know, extinct megafauna, I'm going to give Sam the two points that makes it a tie. Here's how we're going to break the tie. Is a pumpkin a fruit? Yes. But is it a berry or a peepo? Oh, oh shit. Three, two, one. Peepo. Sari's the winner of the episode. It's a peepo. <laughs> My favorite kind of fruit. Because mm -hmm. I get to say people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Peepos are a kind of berry. <laughs> oh, you fool. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we can just both win. This I episode. think you, I, now, you both got it right. Happy Thanksgiving. Everybody wins. <laughs> All right. And that means it's time to ask the science couch. We've got a listener question for our virtual couch of finely honed scientific minds. It's from at scribe of stories who asks, who has the most efficient digestive system? Hmm. Hanks pulling it out of his butt answer is a reptile. This is a subjective question. There is not okay. an objective, most efficient answer. I have collated all of the information on the internet that I could within a couple hours <laughs> uh -huh. and narrowed it down to three creatures that are efficient in different ways. Okay. Um, crocodiles. Ah, uh, that makes sense. Uh, yeah. So they eat a lot of body weight at once. Um, in the lab, juveniles have been observed eating up to 23% of their body weight in one sitting. That's a juvenile for you. Yeah, <laughs> which they say are impractical to study in the lab. May eat more <laughs> in the wild. <laughs> uh, and I thought that was very funny. Adult, adult crocodiles are impractical to study in the lab. I agree with you. <laughs> and so they actually have a weird anatomy in that they have a an extra 
valve in their heart. They have a second aorta, which means it can control where blood flows around its body. So that's how when submerged, oxygen-rich blood is pumped to the, the brain and vital organs, but it doesn't flow to the lungs. So they don't have like the breathing instinct. And so they, they can like shuttle blood in different ways throughout their body is the, is the main point of that. And after a meal, the heart pumps deoxygenated blood, which is really um, has a lot of carbon dioxide, which is acidic towards the stomach, which makes their stomach juices extra acidic. So they eat a huge meal, then their blood pumps acid acidic compounds toward their stomach to make their stomach acid even more acidic to break things down fast and efficiently mm. and well, um, which is very weird yeah. it, that they, they their heart pumps to change their gastric acid production. Then another one that is big bites, good acid are sharks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so sharks, they got big old chunks. They also just like rip pieces uh-huh. of their prey and completely break it down, most of it, into semi-liquid chyme, yeah. I think it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they also have quite strong stomach acid to make that possible. And their cool adaptation that helps with efficiency is their expanding stomach shape. So they have really big, uh, according to the one paper, J-shaped stomachs that can expand considerably so they don't leave food floating around. They just can suck it all in and Mm -hmm. digest it all inside them rather than leaving it to be eaten by other scavengers in the ocean. And their intestines are really short and compact. And the surface area can increase once they eat and when they're ready to digest. Mm. Their intestines kind of balloon outward to increase the surface area so they can absorb nutrients more efficiently and just be like, cool, I ate, I digested, I'm done. Poop, go. Uh, and move on. And then and then my intestines will shrink back down and I won't need to take care of them. Yeah. <laughs> Wild. And then the, the last animal that made my short list are turkey vultures, which oh. is just like, ridiculously low pH so that they don't get like efficient in a way of seafood will eat. Sea bones will eat. Like no matter what you throw into that gob, it's efficient in the way that it digests it where every bit of nutrients going to be extracted from there. Whereas like sharks have to vomit stuff up that they can't finish or like many animals either like poop out or puke out things that they can't consume. But the fact that the pH is so low that it can dissolve metal, it can dissolve toxins that are would otherwise kill mm. other organisms, like it can uh, deactivate botulism toxin or anthrax or rabies. And it's just like, no, no disease is going to stop me. My stomach is so efficient. And they like co-opt bacteria on their skin and faces and in their intestines to help them digest too. So not only can they defeat the stuff that would cause disease, they're like, some of you get in here, help me digest this stuff, which I think is funny. I have been staring at the circulatory diagram of a crocodile this whole time. Um, and I still don't understand. I need, I need an entire sideshow on crocodile hearts. That is wild. Just circulatory systems in general and the fact that they're all different from each other is very weird. But it is especially weird to me that something that I think of as significantly less developed has, in effect, a more complex circulatory system than 
than mammals. They've been at it for a long time. It's true. It's true. Anyway, if you want to ask your questions to the Science Couch, you can follow us on Twitter at SciShowTangents, where we'll tweet out topics for upcoming episodes every week. Or you can join the SciShowTangents Patreon and ask us on Discord. Thank you to at xadrian, at shirtlesy, and everybody else who asked us your questions for this episode. If you like this show and you want to help us out, it's so easy to do that. You can go to patreon.com slash scishowtangents, where you can become a patron and get access to things like our newsletter and our bonus episodes, like our most recent bonus episode, which was called thanks pooping and you can get access we recorded it today it was a, it was just a, a gob of fun if you don't want to hear a lot about poop it's not actually it's all not about all about poop it's <laughs> just to satisfy me and sari and our desire to put the word poop into things and to make me mad yeah maybe yep. it's mostly that we have over 500 patrons now thank you to all of you it's so deeply appreciated because we love to make this show second you can leave us a review wherever you listen that helps us know what you like about the show and it helps other people know what you like about the show and finally if you want to show your love for scishow tangents just tell, tell people, people about, about us. us thank you for joining us i've been hank green i've been sari riley and i've been sam schultz scishow tangents is created by all of us and produced by caitlin hoffmeister and sam schultz who edits a lot of these episodes along with hiroko matsushima our social media organizer is paula garcia prieto our editorial assistants are Debuki chakravarti emma dowster and alex billow our sound design is by joseph tuna medish and we couldn't make any of this without our patrons on patreon thank you and remember the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be lighted. But one more thing. Many people freeze their meat to keep it from growing microbes and deteriorating. But the freezing process can change meat quality by forming ice crystals between the muscle fibers, leading to fractures and gaps. So a study published in the journal Meat Science investigated <laughs> how the freeze-thaw cycle affects Sorry. beef. Meat science! It's a serious science, thing. <laughs> we gotta know about our meat. That's good notes, yeah. While the beef loin became more tender after a freeze-thaw cycle, the round, or the cow butt, remained firm. Uh, Must be all those squats. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, she's thick.